Well, good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. That's where we're going to be today, and we're continuing through our sermon series looking at the stories Jesus told. So, not the stories told about Jesus. There's plenty of those in the Gospel of Matthew, but but we want to examine from now, really, until the summer, the, the illustrations, the metaphors, and the parables that Jesus used to teach both those who were following him and those who weren't following him about himself about what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And so the last two weeks we've uh, examined a couple of things. First, uh, we started off at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with Jesus giving the picture of salt and light when talking about how should those who are followers of me engage with the world around us. Last week we ventured into um, looking at this idea that the Christian life actually requires choices. That there is an actual impossibility to say, I am a follower of Christ... And to drift through life and not having to make conscious choices to follow after Jesus. We saw him laying out choices between two things, uh, four pairings there. And so today, uh, we're looking at, at really um, John the Baptist's disciples, right? These are people who are not quite sure if they're following Jesus or not, but they're coming up to Jesus saying, Jesus, why don't you fit? Why don't you fit my paradigm of who I think you should be? And so that's where we're headed today. And, and so let me just, again, we're popping around a little bit, skipping over major chunks of Matthew. So I want to always keep the context before us. And so let me encourage you, have a Bible open, either a physical one, right? They make those still if you want one, uh, or on a device. And just so you can see what I'm reading, so uh, we can get better at reading God's Word, so you can check if what I'm saying is really what's in the text before you there. But, but uh, I want to give you the context because I think that's important for us to understand what's really being said. In Matthew, we saw the last couple of weeks, Matthew 5 to 7, this is uh, Matthew really recording uh, Jesus shown as the Messiah, the Savior, in how he teaches, in his authority of teaching. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, that's the section that we're looking at today, Matthew begins to focus in on uh, the works of the Messiah, showing the authoritative power of the Messiah, saying, hey, the kingdom of God has actually come to earth. And so we see these pictures of power, Jesus uh, healing sickness, cleansing a leper, healing a servant, healing many. Then we see Jesus' power over nature with his calming the storm. And then uh, we see Jesus' power over Satan in evil where he's casting out demons there in chapter 8. And he teaches about the cost of discipleship. And then in chapter 9 we see more pictures of Jesus' authority, but now something different begins to enter the picture. We see people beginning to go, hey, great, Jesus is healing people and stopping storms, that's great. But but really the true nature of the human heart begins to kind of bubble out. You see people beginning to question him. Verse 3 of the chapter we're going to be in, Jesus tells a man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say, who is this man that's blaspheming, basically calling himself God? That's the first question. And then... The story just before this, the Pharisees questioned Jesus. This is uh, kind of the hyper-religious doing rightness in their own eyes. They see Jesus eating with uh, what would be the religious outcasts of the time or people who uh, the religious folk would have nothing to do with, the sinners and tax collectors. And they go, hey, why why on earth, if he is a, a good man, a good rabbi, why on earth would he eat with sinners? And really, Jesus' answer to that question is Jesus' purpose statement. 
for coming to earth. And it really is that which our story flows out of today. It's worth reading. Um, If I can get it up there. There it is. Oh, I'll let you do it. Matthew 9. There we go. Here's what Jesus says. My purpose for coming is, as he's being asked, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? He says this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous... But sinners, here's what Jesus is saying as he's being questioned. He's saying, hey, um, you sacrifice and you keep all this religious code, but I actually require something different than just keeping all the rules. I require mercy. In fact, that's what I came to do. I came to show mercy, not on those who don't feel like they need mercy, but on those who actually acknowledge that they're sinners. Now, here's a reality that we're living in in our culture here today. When I say the word sin... Chances are, if you're 40 or under, and especially if you haven't been raised in the church, you have no idea what that means. We usually talk about sin in the realm of guilt, right? But again, probably 40 and under, we think more in categories of shame than we do guilt. And it's making less and less sense. So let me just define the term, right, without going into too much detail. But when we say sin, or calling someone sinners, what we're saying is in the eyes of God... God has said, hey, I am Lord, I am King, I am the only thing worth giving your life to, worth aligning your life around, and worth worshiping. And any time we go away from that, either in thought or motivation, in word or what we say, or in deed, one time we have made ourselves rebels against the one true King. We have declared ourselves a permanent enemy against him. And the only way that broken relationship is mended is through the work of God. A sinner is anyone who rebels against God in thought, word, or deed at any point in their lives. And the Bible tells us that is every single person. And so Jesus' purpose and really the controlling idea for today is that Jesus came to set up something totally new to effectively deal with sinners. Jesus came to earth to set up something totally new to effectively deal with every single one of us who constantly shake our fist at him. So here's our text. Again, if you have your Bibles, open in them. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And I'm just going to read straight through. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Pray with me as we get going here this morning. Lord, I guarantee you every single person who is watching or in this room has struggled with how you don't quite make sense in the systems that we put in our lives. We struggle and we wrestle there. So Holy Spirit, would you stretch our hearts and our minds to see the newness of you, to see that you came not to do things the way we would expect, but to set something up 
so complete that it fully deals with every single one of us if we call to you in faith who would rebel against you. Holy Spirit, would you guide and direct my words? Most importantly, would you apply your words to our hearts? We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so here's the first bullet point. Here's the first uh, area I want to tread, and this is in verse 14. Looking at the question our hearts tend to ask. The question our hearts ask. And so here's the first thing I want to say about that is that whenever we approach Jesus, we all come with a God box. This box that we want to fit God into. Jesus, I want you to fit into my box. And here's why I say this. In verse 14, do you see what's happening? You've got the disciples of John, right? So this is John the Baptist, the guy who was really the forerunner for Jesus who came and he actually baptized Jesus. And, and you know, John the Baptist's disciples are kind of squirrely characters in Scripture. We don't quite know what to do with them. Uh, they uh, here are questioning. This is, this is questioning. It's in the context of three different questions where people are going, Jesus, why are you doing it this way, right? It's a complaint against him. And they're basically saying, Jesus, we don't understand you right now. You're not fitting into our paradigm. We, we fast, and the Pharisees, even though we know the Pharisees hate you, <laughs> they fast too. And, and really, you should be, you know, fitting into our box of, of fasting. But, but why are you not? We don't get it. Fasting began, there's elements of fasting that you see in the Mosaic Law and what the Pharisees did as we uh, go through the different um, centuries is, is they began to kind of build extra uh, fasting layers uh, to the law to kind of protect against violating God's law. And so there was all these different rules to fasting. And, and fasting really uh, was part of the trifecta that showed devotion to God. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving were really the, the signs that people were truly dedicated to God. God, at least in the, econ- the religious economy of Judaism and what the Pharisees had set up at this point. And fasting would often depict or give a picture of mourning. And so when somebody was repenting of a sin, right, they would fast. They wouldn't eat. And so, um, interestingly, what John the Baptist's disciples are saying is, is hey, uh, Jesus, we feel like we have more in common with the Pharisees who reject you than we do with you right now. And we're really trying to make sense of what's happening. Part of the reason we ask Jesus, or they're asking Jesus this question, is, is that people in general don't like to decrease. We don't, we don't like to decrease. And, and what Jesus is saying is, is, hey, when I come into a life, I increase and you decrease. And the reason I say that is in John chapter 3, we see John's disciples, uh, really it's one of the first mentions of them, uh, right before the passage I'm getting ready to read. Um, remember, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John the Baptist is known as a forerunner. But his disciples go, whoa, 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 John. Jesus, the guy you baptize, he's over there baptizing people. What's going on? You need to go and get your mojo back and, and kind of take over this guy's ministry because you came before he did. And this was John's response. He said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. So obviously they're confusing John with the Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title of Messiah or Savior. And John's saying, you heard me say, I am not the Savior of the world, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly in the bride, at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So here's what John's saying. He's saying, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the groom. I'm the best man. And I am pumped that he's here. And now that he's here, I take second share. He takes first. He's saying that in response to picking up on what his followers are are believing. It's like, John, you need to go back and increase. You need to take back over. And friends, that's, that's the default of our hearts. So in light of us coming to God saying, hey, fit into my system, into my categories, and in light of the fact that we just don't like to decrease as Jesus comes into play, here's the question that all humans ask. Jesus, why don't you fit into my system? Over Christmas, so my son is really good with electronics, and uh, we were talking about a gaming PC, and buying a, a whole gaming PC is a lot more expensive than buying all the components and putting them together yourself. And so uh, we decided for Christmas to uh, have his gift be a gaming PC, but he picked out all the components and parts. And I mean, literally, it was just like the shell of the tower. And then we just had to plug in every little wire, every little component. He had to spend hours making sure they were all compatible. And so Christmas morning comes, we open all the components. Our dining room table is just littered with electronics. It was one of those fr- frightening things I've ever seen in my life. I was like, there's no way this is going to work. And so we, over the course of the next like six hours, start plugging in little teeny wires. These hands are trying to fit into small spaces. And, and we finally get it set up, or at least so we thought, and we turned it over. And I don't know if you've seen new gaming PCs, but they have all these crazy lights and fans. And, and so we get over and we, we, this is on video, we push the button, the power button, and all the lights come on. We're like, yeah, we're high-fiving. Nothing shows up on the screen. Oh, man. <laughs> so we spent the next couple of hours trying to troubleshoot. There are two men in this church who saved Christmas for the damages because they spent hours on the phone uh, and, and just talking and saying, hey, we'll help you out with that. So Christmas Day, by the way, was just a total failure, at least with regards to the gaming PC. We just said, we're going to bed. The next day, uh, we wake up, and we spend the better part of the next seven hours. Literally, we decide to take the whole thing apart. The whole thing apart. <laughs> and then we plug it all back together. And we push this stupid button, and the lights come on, and nothing comes on the screen. Have you ever seen Dude Perfect and Ty and the Rage Monster? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take this thing and break it into so many small little pieces uh, that, uh, you know, but I just knew we'd never be able to buy another one. Uh, And so um, after, I think total, it was probably about 18 hours worth of work and taking it apart and putting it back together, um, there was one little piece uh, that we had, you're supposed to put it in like this and we put it in like that. uh, And we straightened it and it turned back on, right? Where am I going? Well, I feel like oftentimes uh, Jesus feels like that computer before it turns on. You're not fitting into my system. I plug you into my system of life however I want, and it's not working the way I want, and I want to break this thing. We rage, we rebel, we walk away. It's hard when Jesus doesn't fit into our categories. So let me just start by asking this question. What's your God system? What's your God box that you're trying to fit him into that isn't quite working? Is it just his idea of sin that doesn't fit yours? Is it him not fitting into your views of identity, whatever that may be? 
Is it Him not giving you the comfort you think you deserve? Is it who He decides to change and when? Is it how God blesses you? And when He's not blessing you the way you think, you want to rage. You want to walk away. It's the question all of our hearts ask. Why don't you fit? Well, here's Jesus' response, verse 15. And it really, he starts in a strange way. He goes, hey, uh, me coming into the world is actually a reason to party. A reason to party. Verse 15, he, he, he uses an illustration of the bridegroom. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, I'm the groom. I'm the one you've been waiting for. He's like, fasting is for mourning. He's like, right now, the groom's with you, and it's time to party. Casey, who was just playing on the drums, our family still talks about the dancing and the fun that we had at that wedding. Because when you're at a wedding reception, you're partying. It's a cause for celebration. And he's telling John's disciples, if you feel like this is a time for mourning, you've totally missed it. Now, he's actually saying something far deeper than it's time to party. He's actually saying, I am what you've been waiting for. Now, why would I say that? Well, first of all, this picture of the bridegroom and and wedding feast is something that uh, really starts in the Old Testament. It's carried on all the way through the, uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb that we see and pictured in the end times. But really, what he's saying is quite provocative to John's disciples. Here's a picture. Actually, I'm going to start one verse earlier. Keep that up there, and it'll catch up here in just a second. But, but Todd said it as he was just uh, walking us through the worship service when he was talking about Hosea. And what had happened is God's people had spent hundreds of years, God going to them saying, hey, uh, I want to show you my grace. I want to provide for you. I mean, God's people continually cheated on him spiritually. They kept saying, no, no, we want to go back to Egypt. The food was much better there. We want to worship these other gods. You're not quite giving us what what we want. You're not fitting into our system. Now, if you were around for Habakkuk, you know what that led to. It led to God saying, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And it's going to be judgment. At the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And so here's where we pick up with that picture of the bridegroom. Verse 4 Uh, which isn't up here, but it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. And so here's what's happening. He's saying, hey, even though you're in the midst of captivity because of what you have done, he's saying there will come a day where I will erase your shame. There will come a day where where the bridegroom shows up on the scene and it will all be undone. We see him in Isaiah 62 say something similar. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her for the Lord delights in you and your hand shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the passage we read out of Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness 
and you shall know the Lord. You see, it would be easy for us to say, okay, Jesus is the bridegroom, we're the bride, that's great. And many of us actually understand that anguish of waiting, right? For, for marriage, it's for many of us one of the deepest longings of our heart. But it actually goes far deeper than that. He's not saying, hey, you're just simply a, a person waiting to get married to fulfill that longing of your heart. He's saying, this, you are a person who is actually unlovable in my eyes spiritually. In that culture, for someone to cheat on their husband puts them in a place of such deep shame that they are unlovable. They usually do not ever get remarried. It is financially ruinous. And so it goes far beyond the deepest longings of our heart to find a spouse. It, it goes even deeper in saying, hey, um, you who are spiritually unlovable in my eyes because of how you, uh, how you acted adulterously before me time and time again, I am coming and I am offering to you the opportunity to place your faith in me and be called beloved. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what I'm going to do. And you know, he, he gives a hint to this that fell on deaf ears to every single person in this parable. In verse 15, where he says, The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's saying there's going to come a day where there will be mourning. And you know what this is pointing to when the bridegroom is taken away? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, there will come a day where I do go to the cross to show you the ultimate Valentine's Day, to show you how I love the unlovable, those racked with guilt and shame who have nothing to offer. If you cry out to me in faith. That sort of love gives us reason to rejoice. It's kind of like, did you see the Tampa Bay Buccaneers flotilla parade uh, after the Super Bowl, right? They all got on boats and they celebrated. By the way, um, anybody, you know, swallow their gum or choke or whatnot when Tom Brady threw the Lombardi trophy from one boat to the other? Can you imagine? If it weren't Tom Brady who did that, he'd have been fired, right? Like, gone, you're out of the NFL forever, uh, exile, but because he's the GOAT, uh, he can throw the Lombardi trophy from one boat to the other, right? But they're celebrating, and friends, oftentimes we approach the Christian faith as something that's just dour and, and, oh, it's just, it's grief and it's mourning. And what Jesus is saying is, no, when I show up, it's cause for celebration, not fasting. Friends, do we throw parties? Do we celebrate what Christ has done in our lives? Is it actually exciting to us? This offer of salvation, this offer of a relationship from the God of the universe, this offer to be loved when spiritually we are completely unlovable in his eyes as we rebel against him time and time again. I had a friend who, uh, who or a, a, another pastor say, hey, when he throws um, a party at New Year's, him and his friends say, hey, go get the most expensive food and wine and cheese that you possibly can and let's just come and let's just celebrate God's goodness on New Year's. That's what we're going to do. If you look at some of the feasts in the Bible, it is nothing but celebration. But Christians, sometimes we're the most boring human beings in the world. We don't love to party. And Jesus is saying, party! Celebrate! 
This is something worth rejoicing over. Do you feel unlovable? There's many of us in here who do. And what God is saying is love is offered to us freely in Jesus Christ. Not a love we can achieve, but a love that we simply receive through his life, death, and resurrection. Well, here's the final point. Jesus essentially ends this parable with saying, I have come to do something totally different. He takes us to a sewing room and into a brewery. First, the sewing room. Did you see the picture? He said, nobody takes a new piece of cloth and sews it onto an old piece of clothing, right, when there's a hole. Tall people get this, right? Uh, New things shrink. Most shirts on me, when I buy it, within about six months, it's a belly shirt, right? It just kind of creeps up. My pants turn into high waters, which is becoming more of the style, so, you know, it's a better season for tall guys like me uh, than not. But, but, but new clothes shrink. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a new piece of cloth and sew it onto a piece of fabric that has been shrunken time and time again. And the first time you wash it, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear the garment. He's saying, I don't work like that. And then he takes us into a second uh, place, into uh, kind of a, 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 um, a vineyard or uh, a place where they're brewing wine. And he said, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. So we're used to wine coming in bottles in our culture. But in Jesus' day, they actually put them in animal skins. They took the skins and they, uh, they tanned them to get rid of some of the impurities and what have you. They sewed up the, um, the places where the wine could uh, get out and they closed it and they put the new wine in it. And the wine ferments and expands. So here's another picture. If any of you know Paul McQueen, he's an elder in our church and he's known uh, for uh, understanding science and biology and brewing, right? Uh, and so when you do something like brew beer or wine, you can put it in this big glass thing called a carboy. Uh, but what happens is, and I remember doing this in my own basement as it's brewing, it's like a storm going on inside. Science is awesome. It's just fun to watch. But what's happening is there's fermentation happening. And there's gases being released. And this little thing at the top of the carboy is called an airlock. So it allows gases out, but it doesn't allow the oxygen in right, to ruin what's going on. But if that wasn't there, if we just put a lid on the top of that thing, you know what happened to the glass? It would explode. Similarly are these wineskins where the older the wineskin, the more brittle it becomes and it's not able to expand. And what Jesus is basically saying is, I am new wine. I am something different. And so you're going to not just inject me into the systems that you're used to, but you're going to expect something totally new. The new wine skins will be able to expand. And so here's essentially what he's saying. I won't work in your view of religion. I'm not going to fit into your view of old school Judaism. At least that's what he's saying to John's disciples. The simple application is he's saying, I am the new wine of the new covenant, and I can't simply be stored in containers of religion as you once knew it. Now, this new is spelled out as we go through the book of Matthew, but but the question for us is, so what? What difference does that make today in the 21st century church? Well, I think it's the same idea. Jesus saying, I will not work in your system of religion. I am not the one who you just plug into life as you know it and expect the PC to turn on and run well. 
The Bible talks about those who place their faith in Jesus Christ not being an adapted man or woman, not being an improved man or woman. He says you are a new man or a new woman in Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that we should never be looking for someone to fit into a human-made system to say, oh, that's what a Christian looks like. If a Christian simply looks more like a conservative to us, or more like a progressive to us, or more like someone in the middle, upper middle class, or someone who looks more like the poor, or someone who, uh, whose children, right, if you're truly a Christian child, you're going to go to this four-year university. You're going to fit this socioeconomic class. You're going to look like me. You're going to be more black or more white or more Asian. If, if being a Christian means you fit into a, a man-made system, then we're not following Jesus. We are following a broken-down, messed-up Savior who will fail us time and time again. Jesus says, I have come to blow it all up, to make something new, to take those who sell their souls for comfort and control and to make them people who are selfless, who practice radical hospitality, who are generous. I've come to take oppressors and the angry and the violent and the antagonistic and make them peacemakers and gentle. He's saying, I've come to do something that only the Holy Spirit can do, not a human-made system at all. Church, are we looking for something new? Or are we just looking for something that's improved in our world? Jesus here is saying, that is just a thought to be rejected. Are we looking for, for Jesus to come into lives and families and neighborhoods and communities and totally transform it? Are we just looking for Christian gentrification? For those of you who don't know Jesus, let me encourage you to look past the places where the church has failed to demonstrate this sort of radical faith and radical change that Jesus came to bring and to seek scriptures and look at the real Jesus, to call out to him in faith and in our most unlovable moments believe that Jesus offers love radically through the grace offered us through the cross and resurrection. And church, can we just rejoice a little bit? Yeah, it's a pandemic. Oh man, I hate winter. But can we just take time to celebrate with friends and family or wherever we're able to do it what Christ has done? Remember, Paul rejoices in prison. Jesus, why don't you fit? That's because he never intended to. Jesus came to set up something totally new, something no man or woman could ever construct to save rebels like us from our sin. Let me close this in prayer as we move to communion. Lord, admittedly for me, it's easier to set up systems that I can control It's easy for me to want a God who fits into my paradigms. But it's easy for me to want a God who looks at um, the small percentage of the quote-unquote good I do and say, yep, you're doing a great job, keep pressing on. 
rather than a God who comes to the Anthony I really know, who constantly rebels against you, who feels shame, who feels guilt, who often feels unlovable, and says, place your unadulterated, unfiltered trust in me, and I make you lovable, beloved. Oh, Lord, would you protect us from trying to make you fit into our lives and, Lord, freely offer our lives to you to say, make it new. Change it entirely. Lord, would you be with us as we move to the table this morning? We pray these things in your name. Amen.